Good morning. It's good to see everybody. Hope the weekend is going well for all. It's good to gather on the Lord's Day just to, to uh, meet with other believers, to sit under the teaching of the Word, to sing together, to pray. So it's just always a privilege as, as we're here on, on Sundays. And it's really been a neat and a hopefully helpful time in Sunday school over this summer as we've been looking at the doctrines of grace. So let me begin in prayer. And then our subject this morning is unconditional election. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your grace on display in our, our lives this morning as we gather. We seek to make much of you. Uh, God, may you be glorified in our lives. Um, may we rightly recognize your, your sovereign reign over all. Um, and may we respond with grateful praise to that reality. May we delight in that reality. And uh, so this morning, as we open up your word, help us to think carefully, to think biblically, to submit to scriptures, and help us to... Uh, to glorify you through this study. We thank you and praise you for your work of salvation that you do in the lives of your chosen people. So it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hopefully you grabbed a handout on your way in. I'm going to go ahead and begin with that, that first passage up at the top, uh, just as an introduction of sorts. We're really looking at a, re- a real broad passage here speaking to the sovereignty of God over all things, but I think it'll serve us well in just beginning this topic this morning. If you think of Psalm 115 verse 3, it says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. So God reigns, sovereign over all, and he does all that he pleases. So in a variety of contexts this summer, I've been doing a study on the attributes of God with, with several different groups of people, and, and we were talking about the sovereignty of God, and as we walked through that attribute, we thought carefully about just God's sovereignty on, di- on display in a variety of areas of our lives. And so as you look through the scriptures, you see that God is in control. God is sovereign over, you know, fill in the blank, really. God is sovereign over nature. So you look at passages that, that speak to the, the weather or uh, animal life, you know, on and on we could go where we see God's sovereign reign, his rule on display over nature, and over weather, over what we would often associate as pretty random events. You read in the Proverbs that, that God is sovereign even over what seems to be random events. God's sovereign over it. Uh, God is sovereign over our hearts, even when you think of maybe what would come to mind to think of who who has the most control, you might think of a ruler, and even in the scriptures we see that, that God is sovereign over even the hearts of kings. Uh, he, he does whatever he pleases with nature, with, with the hearts of men, with uh, events that, that might even seem kind of indifferent. God, God is in control of seemingly random events. And this morning, what we're going to do is look at the reality that God is sovereign over salvation as well. And so when you read in, in Jonah that salvation belongs to the Lord, uh, this, this issue that we're going to look at this morning of, of election, to speak of unconditional election, is getting at one aspect of salvation that God chooses, and it's showing us God's sovereignty on display in the work of redeeming his children. God, God chooses those whom he will save. And so it just falls in line under this umbrella of God's sovereignty. If, if he's in control of all, does whatever he pleases, it, it fits in um, here as well to think of salvation as well. God saves whom he will save. And so I have a, a description. This is from the Westminster Confession of Faith. So Article 3.5, I think there's, there's a lot that's helpful here. And when we start to walk through these texts, we, we have, a, we have a, variety, a lot of, of scriptures to look at this morning. And as we walk through these scriptures, I, I think you'll see these truths come out that, that, we, that are acknowledged here in, in this confession. And I think this confession will help us to kind of define in our minds what we're talking about when we talk about election, but really in particular, unconditional election. So just follow along as I read this description from the Westminster Confession. To speak of election, then, is those of mankind that are predestined unto life, 
God, before the foundation of the world, was laid um, according to his eternal and immutable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory out of his free grace and love alone without any foresight of faith or good works or perseverance in either of them or any other thing in the creature as conditions or causes moving him thereunto and all to the praise of his glorious grace. To sum up what's in that rather lengthy description, we're saying God chooses those whom he'll save and, and he does it unconditionally. He doesn't do it based on any condition, not foreseen faith, not growth in godliness, not pursuit of holiness, not perseverance in any of those acts. It's not foreseen faith. It's not any other um, condition outside. It's, it's just according to God's sovereign purposes. Uh, he saves according to the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will is what this definition tells us. That's, that's the basis for God's choosing. It's just according to his sovereign purposes. And he does it all for his own glory. That's how the description ends there. To say all of this, to speak of election, is done according to the praise of his glorious grace. So we're just moving along in these realities of the doctrines of grace that we began exploring our condition, that we are radically depraved. And so our sin has radically corrupted Every part of us, there's nothing good in us. We are dead in our sins. Not only stained, uh, weak, wounded by sin, we are dead in sin. And, and, um, and unless God acts, we are without hope. And so after we moved from radical depravity, we saw that we, we talked about regeneration, that, that God saves. He has to open our eyes uh, to respond rightly. We, we saw how he does that in an irresistible way when we looked at effectual calling that, that, that when, when God calls, there's this gospel call that goes out to all, but, but when God draws someone unto himself, they respond. It's this irresistible call, this effectual calling. So, so we're dead in our sin, so, so God alone can save us. We can do nothing good in and of ourselves. And so, so God calls us unto himself and we respond because God places this irresistible call on us. And so then even last week, as, as you're acknowledging that we're dead in sin and you're thinking this question of how can anyone be saved? And, and last week, as you looked at the atonement, you're seeing how God actually accomplishes um, salvation for his people in the atonement. And so this morning, we're, we're looking at how, how election uh, plays into this understanding of God's work of salvation, how God chooses out a people for himself. He elects them. So this is the U in TULIP. We've changed the letters all along, right? I'm going to go ahead and keep U. You know, it was TULIP, then it quickly became RULIP, then it was like REPAP or something. So I don't know where we're at, but there's still a U somewhere in there. We've even changed the order. But uh, we got unconditional election this morning, and it is a thoroughly, election is a thoroughly biblical doctrine. We see election all over the place. The doctrine certainly involves mystery, and so there's going to be some questions that remain in our minds. But, but we just submit to, to the Word of God and the will of God in, in election. So there's certainly mystery involved. And really, even maybe even in the life of our church, but in many you know, Christians, there, there's often uh, you know, difficult or maybe controversial uh, conversations that can take place in thinking about the issue of election. Um, I was reading one pastor just kind of reminding us that emotions often run very high when we start talking about election, I was reading even this week uh, uh, something from John Wesley, who, who would, would not have held to unconditional election, held to conditional election. As, and he viewed those who would hold to what I'm going to teach this morning. He's saying, I would rather be an atheist than hold to uh, unconditional election. Uh, so I thought that was pretty aggressive language from, from him. And he certainly... 
individuals that would hold to a reform view would be just as guilty oftentimes of, of getting rather heated and emotional in, in, in their views in regards to election. So it can often be an emotional issue to discuss, but it is absolutely biblical. And so if, if you look on this sheet in front of you, I, I think there's just a dozen or so passages, and that's just um, according to the purposes of this teacher, in a way, like why just 12 or 13 verses of what could have been many uh, verses that would speak to this doctrine in the scriptures. And, and really primarily stuck with the New Testament, but, but election is throughout the scriptures, uh, and we have much to, to explore. You're really ignoring much of the Bible if you just kind of approach the topic of election and thinking, oh boy, controversial. I just think I'm going to kind of back off and not, not really, you know, invest in this potentially controversial topic. You're going to ignore a lot of the scripture if that's your approach. So you want to think the scripture says much about election, so we want to look carefully at what does the scripture have to say in regards to this doctrine of election. And I do think even if there are individuals in this room who find themselves on, on either side of this issue, I just think the local church is, is just an absolutely appropriate community for us to, to be working through this together, to, to think about what the scriptures have to say. And um, asking questions is absolutely appropriate. Um, as, those questions always being um, informed by the scriptures. You know, the scripture is our authority as we ask these, these tough questions. And so up to this point, it seems like we've taken all of our time each morning to, to, to present each of these. And so you, I bet each week many of you have had questions. Some of you have been able to come up and ask afterwards. Uh, please keep doing that. Um, ask questions, and we, we do desire to, to answer those, maybe even on an individual level, but I do think that we're even trying to think of ways that, that we can spend some time answering these questions during, during our, our, our class on Sunday morning. So, so write down some questions that you might have as we discuss this doctrine of unconditional election this morning. Unconditional in regards to saying that we owe our faith to our election. Like God elected us unconditionally. So again, there, there's going to be people on both sides of the issue, but, but both sides are going to affirm election. When, when the reform view speaking to unconditional election, we're saying we owe our faith to our election. Those who would hold to conditional election, you think just the opposite here of what they would be saying. They would say, I owe my election to my faith. That, that the condition uh, upon election is your faith. So, so God chooses, but he chooses based on his perfect knowledge, looking down through the history of, of the world and seeing those who, who place their faith in him. Those are who he elects. That would be conditional election, saying that we owe our election to our faith. That's conditional I'm teaching unconditional election this morning, saying that we owe our faith to our election. So if you have those two opposite views, either you owe your election to your faith or you owe your faith to your election, we ought to ask ourselves, did God choose us before or after we had faith? If you're saying that you owe your faith to your election, uh, you're saying it's an unconditional election. If you're saying that you owe your election to your faith, you're saying it's a, the condition of my election is faith. So we ought to ask ourselves the question, did God, when did God choose me? Did he choose me before I had faith or after I had faith? And so that's, um, that will be what we want to think carefully about as we, as we get into uh, these verses this morning, and really will come out in Ephesians 1. So what you have in front of you, uh, I just wanted to point out that, that there's a, a lot of places in Scripture we could go. And so at the beginning, I just have in that parenthetical just four or five verses that just kind of show us that this theme throughout the New Testament. So Jesus taught unconditional election. That's what I'm going to advocate for as we look through Matthew 11. Then reminded that Luke taught unconditional election as we look at these verses in Acts. 
And then, I mean, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5 would just be one more isolated passage that the Apostle Paul, we could, we could show you places in Peter, show you places in ja- a place in James. I mean, the, the apostles taught unconditional election. So well, my explanation here is that we're just going to look at those first four verses, just as brief, isolated passages that, that make some potent points about unconditional election. And then we're going to spend the bulk of our time looking at three more lengthy passages uh, in a little bit more uh, detail as we walk through Ephesians 1, Romans 8, and then Romans 9. And of course, all three of those are, are Paul. So Paul taught unconditional election as well. So we got a lot of scripture to look at, and we have a good amount of time to do it, I believe. So, so let's all begin in, um, in Matthew 11. And uh, really, I probably would do well to ask that question I asked a few minutes ago a little bit later as we get down to Ephesians 1. But, but keep that question in your mind if you're saying that you owe your election to your faith. You want to think about, well, when did God choose? Did he do it before or after I had faith? That's going to help us to think through, is it conditional or is it unconditional? And even these verses that we'll look at now will clarify that, but Ephesians 1 will bring very uh, much light to that question. So, everybody in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus taught unconditional election. Matthew 11, 25 through 27. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So we're even seeing this choosing that's here at the end of verse 27, that that even the Son, uh, anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him, anyone to whom the Son chooses, like got the Son, Jesus, uh, is is involved in this unconditional election. Jesus teaches it, and Jesus, um, this is a Trinitarian work, anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. So, if you walk through the argument there, you're saying, uh, who is it that knows God? Uh, no one, uh, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son and everyone to whom he has, has chosen. So, so you see this election on display in the words of Jesus in Matthew 11. Let's move over to Acts chapter 13. It's fascinating to watch the order of events in this verse. Acts 13, 48. So the gospel is being proclaimed and people are being saved. Look at verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. If you read that too quickly, it's not all that impressive. You're thinking, absolutely, the gospel is preached, and people believe, and those people that believe are saved, they are added to that number, they, they have eternal life. They've been appointed unto eternal life. The gospel's preached, people believe, And those people that believe have been appointed unto eternal life. But if you look at the verse carefully, the order of events matters so significantly. When the Gentiles heard this, so so the means of saving someone, hearing the word, the the proclamation of the gospel, the gospel's proclaimed. When the the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Um, their, 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 their response, this is, this is um, a right response to the gospel. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed 
to eternal life believed. So exactly opposite order of what you would think. You'd think it would say they believed and as many as had been, uh, and, and they were added to, they were appointed to eternal life. But no, it's saying everyone that God had chosen, everyone that God had appointed unto eternal life, everyone's hearing this gospel call go out. So we talked about with the effectual call, the gospel's proclaimed and everyone that God had appointed unto eternal life, those are the ones who believed. And so you're seeing God's choosing his unconditional election on display in in who responds rightly to the gospel. Those who respond rightly are those who were already appointed unto eternal life. As many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Okay, turn over to the right a few more pages to Acts chapter 18. Acts 18, 9 and 10. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Let's pause for just a second. If you, if you move back, you're seeing that in Paul's missionary work, as he's been preaching the gospel, it's, it's come with much opposition. Uh, he, he's, he's, he's preached in the synagogues. They, they've responded poorly. <laughs> To, to Paul, and now he's preaching to the Gentiles. Um, he is, he, he's seeking to be faithful to this gospel declaration. He's, he's preached to the Jews, now he's preaching to the Gentiles. And in verse 9, the Lord says, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Verse 10, For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. So you hear the, the words of endurance, this encouragement coming from the Lord to Paul saying, press on, continue in this faithful proclamation of the word because I have many in this city. So these are individuals that God has chosen, those who have not uh, responded to the gospel, but they are his. God has chosen them. I have many people in this city. God's words to Paul are continue. Continue to proclaim the gospel because there are going to be those who will be saved. For I have many people in this city. Again, you're seeing clarity here in regards to unconditional election. God has chosen a people. They're um, their election is not based on their faith because they have not responded in faith to the gospel yet. God has many people in this city. And so proclaim the gospel so that they will um, respond in faith and be saved. Uh, Acts 13, everyone who had been appointed unto eternal life responded rightly. Um, don't get the, the order backwards there. Uh, First Thessalonians, also just helpful and just short little cross-reference before we get into these three lengthier passages. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So these, these believers, these, this church in Thessalonica, they are beloved by God. They were chosen by God. Verse 4, uh, Thessalonians that are beloved by God, his choice of you. He chose you, is what Paul is reminding the, Thessalonic, um, the Thessalonians. He chose you. Um, and so verse 5 is then showing us just this, this the power of the gospel when uh, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So, so God chose them. They are beloved by him. God chooses unconditionally. Okay, so back to that question I asked about if, if, our, um, if we owe our faith to our election, as I think Acts 13 
great cross-reference for that reality. Uh, everyone who um, was appointed unto eternal life, that's their election, is the basis for their faith. Acts 13.48 says, everyone um, who is appointed unto eternal life believed. There's, there's your faith based on your election. Um, these, other, these other passages, I think, e- equally illustrate that, but the, the question might still remain in your mind. Well, when, when, did I, then when did I place my faith? When did, you ch- when did God choose you? Did he choose you before or after you had faith? And so Ephesians 1 is just a, a primary place to go to think about the timing of our election. Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, we'll, we'll read verses 4 through 10 and then walk back through several of those verses. So hopefully everybody's there. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 10. Paul writing here, he, he says, "...just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love..." He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. I'm going to go ahead and just actually stop here for just a second. Uh, You have it in your handout, obviously, but but think carefully about what Ephesians is teaching, what Paul is teaching here in Ephesians. When we're speaking of election, which is what we're speaking of, verse 4, just as he chose us in him, we're talking about election, And what does Ephesians 1 show us in regards to the timing of God electing us? He chose us before the foundation of the world. So if you think of the timing of God's choosing of us, that is certainly helpful in coming to grips with this unconditional reality of election. But it also, it's just illustrating our lack of any contribution to this. Because God did this before the foundation of the world. So verse 4 speaks to the timing of God's choosing of us. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. As you continue in this rich passage, verse 5 shows us the basis for God's choosing. It's, it's not our faith. It's not, when we were reading through that Westminster Confession, it's not any uh, foresight of faith It's not the basis of our perseverance in any pursuit of godliness. It's not any, that's not the basis. Verse 5 tells us the basis for God's choosing of us is according to the purpose of his will. And that's a repeated phrase in Ephesians 1, uh, the purpose of his will. So the timing of it is before the foundation of the world. I keep saying it. The timing of God's choosing is election of us before the foundation of the world. The basis for his choosing us is according to the purpose of his will. God's purpose, his will, not foreseen faith. And so when you're seeing this too, it's not just kind of like an eeny, meeny, miny, mo type of thing. It's not arbitrary and mindless. Um, it's, it's according to his good pleasure. It's according to what pleased him. He's sovereign over all. Remember Psalm 115. He does all that he pleases. So anything that God does is based on his good pleasure. So it pleased him uh, to do so. It pleased him to choose us in him before the foundation of the world. That's the basis for his choosing is according to the kind intention of his will, according to the purpose of of his will. It pleased him because it lines up with his character. In choosing those whom he would save, it lines up with his justice. It lines up with his love. It lines up with, with all his perfections. It pleased God to do as he did because salvation belongs to the Lord. And ultimately we'll see in verse in Ephesians 1 that, that, that all of it brings glory to the primary purpose in choosing is God's glory alone. So the timing of, of election is before the foundation of the world. The basis of God choosing is according to the purpose of his will. And the result of this, and it may almost seem way too obvious, but it actually is important. Um, and we'll talk about this in just one second. The result of God choosing us is salvation. But when you see the result listed in verses four and five, of that, that in, in choosing us, it leads to holiness. He chooses us according to the purposes of his will so that we should be holy. The result is that we would be adopted 
as, as sons. We are, adopt, we are adopted to himself. We are saved. You read in Ephesians 1 as you continue, forgiveness of sins. Um, on and on we go looking at redemption through his blood. Uh, all, all of these salvation terms. We're seeing God saves us and um, salvation comes through. He chooses us unto himself. And those whom he chooses, he saves. So we're chosen unto salvation. And the reason I'm making that point is there actually are arguments where individuals that would hold to election but would disagree with unconditional election, they would have a variety of different arguments about what they're saying is going on not only here in Ephesians 1 but just throughout the Scriptures. Uh, Some of the arguments that that would go um, contrary to what I'm saying would be what's already been articulated a few times. Just The main argument is that God chooses, but it's a conditional choosing. That's the most, that's a primary um, view that, that those would hold that, that disagree with the Reformed view that, that do not affirm unconditional election. They're saying election exists. It's all over the place in Scripture. We can't argue with that. But, but God chooses conditionally. But, but Ephesians 1 certainly, um, I think you're just ignoring certain obvious realities about before the foundation of the world. And this would come even more clear as we move on to Romans 8 in just a minute. But Okay, so conditional election is one of the arguments. Another argument would be that, that it's corporate election, not individual election. But uh, even here in Ephesians 1, you're seeing individual election when you're saying he chose us. Uh, when, when he's speaking to the Ephesian church, he's talking about believers in Ephesus. He chose us. He predestined us. As we move into Romans in a minute, you'll see individuals listed uh, that, dis- that demonstrate God's choosing is an a individual election. There are certainly corporate realities to this. We, we are saved into a community. We are, we are the church, but, but, but he chooses individuals. Uh, it's not just, uh, you, you can't just say, well, 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 God chose the church, and then everybody that places their faith in Christ um, by faith is placed into the church. And so we choose God. God chose the church and we chose God. That's kind of the, the argument for, I think I'm representing that relatively accurately to say that's the argument for the corporate election. But we're saying, no, that God, God saves unconditionally. He individually saves sinners um, unconditionally. Another argument would be that he just say, he doesn't save us unto salvation. He saves us unto service. You know, if you think of God chose disciples, he chose them for a particular task. God chooses people for tasks in the Old Testament. And they're saying it's just the same thing when we read about God choosing in the New Testament. We're not talking about him choosing us unto salvation. He just chooses us unto service. But that, that's why I was just making that last point about the result listed in Ephesians 1. You know, what is the result of God's choosing? Salvation. You know, he chooses us and, and that, that leads to fruit that we're saved, we, we're holy, we're adopted as sons. This is, a sal- this is a choosing unto salvation, not a choosing unto service merely. So um, those are some of the arguments. There are more and um, don't have time to, to speak to all of those. Ephesians 1, though, showing us the timing of God's choosing, the basis of it, and the result of it. Uh, Speaking of timing, let's, let's pick up the pace here. Romans 8, uh, 28 through 30. We talked about this probably numerous weeks, all right? This is such a foundational text in thinking through um, this work of salvation that God does in the hearts of his children. This is that golden chain of salvation that you read about in these verses, verse, beginning in verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So those, those five words, uh, so, so key in, in seeing the, this work of salvation that God does in, in, in his children. He, those who he foreknew, he predestined. Those who he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. So everyone who's ultimately glorified, someone who was foreknown by God. There, there's no like breakdown in this sequence of events. It's not that, that some are justified 
but they actually did it of their own will. Now, everybody that was justified is somebody who was foreknown by God. And everybody who is justified will persevere unto the end. They will ultimately be glorified. There's no breakdown here. Uh, it's this unbreakable chain, this golden chain of salvation. Everyone who God foreknew unto salvation will be glorified. And so um, God preserves all who he saves. So you're thinking here, well, is this actually a great argument for conditional election then, what you're just saying here in Romans 8? Because when I hear that word for new, um, I'm thinking of something that sounds conditional, is what might be on the minds of many. Because when you read verse 29, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. The picture that is often in our minds um, when we think of this word foreknew is, is we're thinking, okay, God is omniscient. God knows all things and he's always known all things. He's eternally, infinitely, unchangeably omniscient. And so you're thinking, just as much as even Ephesians 1 tells us that God chose us before the foundation of the world. When you take Romans 8, 29, and you see this word foreknew, uh, you're thinking perhaps what, what we're talking about here is that God in his perfect knowledge looks down the corridor of time and sees all who place their faith in him. And based on his perfect knowledge of man's choice in the future, he chooses them in eternity past based on their, their future choice that they're going to make in him. That's, that's what is often understood in regards to Romans 8.29 as, as an argument for conditional election. But we really need to think carefully about what this word foreknew actually means because what I just described does not represent well this word foreknew. Um, you'll notice that, that Paul doesn't say in Romans 8.29 that um, those whose faith he foreknew, no, it's, it's not their faith that he, had, um, that he foreknew. He, he foreknew them. They, they were his. They were his chosen. So, so I have a variety of passages here real quickly that I want us to look to because I think it's going to help us to see when we're talking about foreknowledge in the scripture, we're not merely talking about awareness. We're not just talking about information. It's not that God just knows about something. When we talk about foreknowledge in the scripture, we are talking about an uh, intimately knowing someone, intimately knowing beforehand, fixing someone's love upon someone. Fixing one's love upon a person is what one commentator even um, described foreknowledge as. And this was not even um, someone who holds to a reformed understanding of salvation. That was, he's rightly recognizing though, the definition of foreknowledge, fixing one's love upon a person. So we're talking about more than just awareness. We're talking more about more than information. Um, well, what are we talking about? Let's, let's walk through super fast. Uh, Genesis 4, uh, I wrote here key passages on foreknowledge. I guess that's not entirely accurate here because what we're seeing is just the use of knowledge in, in the scriptures. What, what does this word know mean in the scriptures? And so maybe even in an uncomfortable way, we begin with Genesis 4.1 to kind of get an idea of the intimacy that is referred to that the word know often means in, in Scripture. Genesis 4.1 talks about now the man had um, relations with his wife, Eve. This is the New American Standard. Somebody read for me uh, the ESV real quick. Genesis 4.1. Maybe uh, Ben, just because I know what you got in front of you. I'm going to pick on you. Yeah. That's fine. Thank you. So if I'm looking at the New American Standard here and it's saying, now the man had relations with his wife, uh, and then you're reading in the ESV this translation um, of, of knowledge. Now, now he knew his wife. Genesis 4.1 is really showing us a lot. When we're talking about knowing someone in the scripture, this knowing someone often really refers to knowing in a very intimate way, in a close way, in a loving way. So then move over to Jeremiah. In fact, just um, for pace here, it, it, whoever gets, whoever gets uh, there first, if you just read it, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I have 
Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, so Jeremiah 1.5, just another great example of this intimate knowledge of someone that's on display and God's knowing Jeremiah and knowing Jeremiah uh, before he was even born. I formed you in the womb. I, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. So Jeremiah 1.5 says, so, so we're talking about intimate knowledge, uh, intimately knowing someone. So then when you start talking about foreknowledge, we're talking about intimately knowing beforehand when we start using this word foreknowledge. Uh, I think Amos 3.2. That one's going to be hard to find. Everybody's singing the Old Testament song in their head right now, including me. Okay, stay there for a second because I'm going to want you to read it again. If, we're, if, if God, through the prophet, we're speaking to the nation Israel. And what does God say about Israel if you'd read Amos 3.2 again for us? Okay, so if you're thinking about God as telling Israel that you only have I known, um, does he, is he just really bad at geography? Like, is Israel the only nation that he has knowledge of? No, he, he knows the Assyrians. He knows of this. He knows all things perfectly. But when he's telling Israel that you only have I known, he's referring to this intimate knowledge of um, them, this fixing one's love upon a nation. God chose Israel. You only have I known. So what God is saying in Amos 3.2. Okay, moving into the New Testament. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Again, we are not talking about information. He's like, oh man, I just didn't know about you. No, God, God knows all things, but he does not know those who are not saved. He doesn't know them in an intimate way. He has not placed his, he's not fixed his love upon them. He's not known them in that way says Matthew 7. So then in Galatians 4, it'd be similar talking about um, us knowing God or, or rather being known by God is what Paul would say in Galatians 4. So, so that's something that is true of everyone's in a right relationship with God. They know God, but more importantly, they are known by God. And again, it's not that he just, oh yeah, yeah, yeah Doug Link, he lives in Tallahassee. No, he, he, he has placed his love on those whom he has saved. He knows us. Uh, I'm just skipping these, uh, turning to these just to maybe pick up the pace. But First Peter 1, saying, saying similar things when we're talking about uh, even God's foreknowledge of, of, of the work of Christ. First uh, Peter 1.20, um, For he was no, foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. All of this to say that... Um, God planned to set his love upon those whom he chose. So when you're seeing the word foreknew in Romans 8, 29, we're not talking about God knowing about what you're going to do. In the, he certainly knows what you're going to do in the future. He brings everything about. He does all that he pleases. He has perfect knowledge of everything that has ever happened or ever will happen. So we're not talking about less than knowing what's going to happen in the future. We're talking about more than knowing. Not only does God know all things perfectly, to say that God foreknew you in Romans 8, 29 is saying that God planned to set his love upon you. So those who were foreknown, foreknown are predestined. Uh, and those who predestined, called, justified, glorified. On through the list it goes. Okay, so we'll finish with, with Romans 9. What a foundational place to, to be in regards to unconditional election. Romans 9, 10 through 24. Dropping in the midst of uh, context here that we'll just have to begin in verse 10 though. Uh, Romans 9, 10, it says, And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, 
Again, timing. Ephesians 1 is not the only place where this timing comes up. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Well, let's just use this section right now to just, just acknowledge what, what have we observed here. You are seeing unconditional election on display. It ends in verse 13 with saying, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Well, what's the basis for that? Was it according to the good things that one did and the bad things that the other didn't, or the bad things that the other did? Well, no, that's been clarified uh, in verse 11. It says, even though they weren't even born yet, it certainly has nothing to do with, with what they have done. They have not done anything yet, okay? They hadn't been born. And, it, and then even specifically saying it, it wasn't according to anything good or bad. It was according to his choice. Uh, it, was, it was him who, who called. It's, it's not because of works. It's because of him who calls. And what are we talking about? His basis for choosing Jacob and, and hating Esau. It was according to his sovereign purposes. Well, let's continue. Verse 14, what shall we say then? After hearing this, after hearing verses 10 through 13, Paul anticipates this protest. It sounds in verse 13, probably what's in many of our minds when we read something like this, you think, whoa, 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 what, what, are we, what do we think of this? There is no injustice with God, is there? And Paul's response is, may it never be. Like this first protest upon hearing that God chooses, it's not based on, on anything, anything that we've done, just according to his own purposes. The response is, whoa, 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 this does not sound fair. Is there injustice on God's part? The scriptures are very clear. God is perfect in justice. All his ways are justice. Um, that's even in Deuteronomy. Um, Paul could have said, uh, I think you might have just misunderstood what I said. When, when they're thinking, wait, is there injustice with God? Paul could have gone back and clarified, I don't mean to say that God doesn't take into account your, your free will. I think you might have misunderstood me. No, Paul, Paul's saying, Paul doesn't need to make such clarification because that's not, he, they did hear him rightly. He, he is saying it's God alone who saves and it doesn't take into account anything uh, foreseen any works. Uh, so this protest sounds like, wow, this does not sound fair. It sounds like God is in control of salvation entirely. And, and God is saying, or, and Paul is saying, yes, um, there, there is no injustice with God. May it never be. But why is this the case? Well, God is in this rightful place of ruling and reigning. He's just, and he, he shows mercy upon whom he's going to show mercy upon. That's the argument that follows. Verse 15, he says, to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Paul ups the ante here. God is sovereign over who he shows mercy to. And he's also sovereign over those whom he hardens. So Pharaoh is an example of God's sovereign hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We read other places, the human responsibility of Pharaoh's poor decisions. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But here in Romans 9, we're seeing it's God who hardened the heart of Pharaoh. Um, then again, there's this protest number two then based on what we just saw Paul saying, verse 19, it says, well, maybe you're going to ask yourselves this then. Verse 19 says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Again, this sounds like a, this doesn't sound fair to me kind of argument. If you're saying God is in control, God chooses, and he doesn't take into account any works of mine, this does not sound fair. Um, and, and Paul doesn't back down again and say, again, I, I think you're misunderstanding what I'm trying to say. No, what, what, what Paul says in verse 20 is, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? 
Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Well, we'll stop in verse 24 just again to see that, um, that uh, God chooses, God's sovereign over election. He does it unconditionally. He saves individuals unto salvation. And, uh, and it just shows us his, his control over all things. And, and what's, the, what's the primary purpose for why God saves sinners? For his own glory. That's what Ephesians 1 ended with, to the praise of his own glory. Romans 9 just uh, ended with it there in our section in verse 23 when it was saying uh, it's God's, uh, unto God's glory, um, he made known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. So we're going to talk more about election next week. But I'll just end with a quote. When we read this, when we consider this, when we think carefully about what the scriptures have to say about God unconditionally choosing those whom he will save, this doctrine ought to help us. It ought to encourage us to recognize how great the grace is of God to save sinners. He saves us. It ought to humble us. It ought to give us confidence in our faith. It's God who saved um, if it was up to me, you know, this has been said by so many, so many times, and it's so accurate to think this way. If salvation was up to us, you know, we would lose it. But, but salvation is not up to us because God saves us. So it should give us confidence. And that confidence ought to lead to joy. God saves us, and we have confidence in our right standing with God. That brings joy to our hearts, praise to our lips that, that God saves sinners. And we delight in that. And may we seek to pursue faithfulness all our days because God saved us. And um, may we pursue holiness in response to God's saving of us. So praise God for this work of salvation. To him alone be the glory. Um, God saves sinners. Uh, and we, we are thankful for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning to delight in the truth that, that you save. As we've been reminded over the past few weeks, our sin... It's corrupted all mankind. We are dead in our sin and with, left without hope when we're left to our own. And so we just thank you and praise you that motivated by love, you sent your son to die on the cross to pay for our sin so that we could be reconciled to you. And, and you gave us eyes to see so that we could respond rightly to the gospel so that we could be reconciled to you in right standing with you. So we just thank you and praise you for the gospel. Thank you for doing this work of salvation in the hearts of all your children. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.